Amen. We're continuing in our series, Free at Last, from the book of Exodus. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 8 to 22 in your hearing this morning. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick, and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son, that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do ask this morning that you, by the power of your Spirit, through your word, would continue to work on us, would continue to transform us and renew us and set us free, Lord, from the practice of sin in all of our relationships with you, with each other, with the very creation itself. I pray, Lord God, that you would speak a word into our lives that would indeed change us, transform us, renew us, heal us, Father. And as we all sit under the authority of your word, we ask you to help us in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we sing a song that says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Then in the chorus we declare, whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I fear? It's a great song. Yet the question, whom shall I fear, though obvious in the song, is not so obvious when we are face to face 
with the circumstances of life. Indeed, the question, whom shall I fear, implies that there are other things and other persons that present themselves as objects to be feared. Indeed, in a passage you've heard me read before, God ties our salvation to freedom from fear of one of those objects, namely death itself. He says to the writer of Hebrews, speaking to the work of Christ, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This slavery to the fear of death presents itself not just in the fear of literal death, but the fear of death represented in the loss of something that we hold important, something that we hold valuable, something that we hold central to our life individually or collectively. Our, our sin, which separates us from God, from each other, and from the very creation itself, breeds fear, and that fear leads us toward all kinds of destructive patterns of thinking and behaving. If the fear of the Lord leads to life, it is no stress to say that the fear of anything other than Him leads us toward death. And yet, if we are honest, who in here can say that we have not or do not struggle with the fear of things other than the Lord on some level? I want to suggest to you that the passage in front of us has everything to do with fear. It is a story that teaches us story that teaches us how the wrong kind of fear leads to evil and suffering in this world, and how the right kind of fear leads us toward the salvation that God has come to bring into this world for human beings trapped under sin and the fear that sin produces. And the real call before God's people to whom Moses wrote and to us whom by faith in Jesus are part, are part of that same story of God's plan to save a people for Himself from among all the nations. The, 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 the point is to choose the right kind of fear, to choose the right kind of fear. The story, brothers and sisters, presents us with these truths, that the fear of man leads to oppression, and the fear of God leads to salvation. The fear of man leads to oppression. The fear of God leads to salvation. And even those who trust in God, who are a part of His covenant community, the community to which He has bound Himself in relationship in Jesus, are confronted with this choice in their day-to-day -day living in this world. And I'm going… the question for us is, am I going to choose the fear of man that leads to oppression, or am I going to choose the fear of God that leads to salvation? And in a world that has been deeply corrupted by human beings' sin and rebellion against God, those objects of fear, they keep rearing their ugly head in our lives, and they keep presenting generation after generation of God's people with the question, whom shall I 
fear. And our answer must continue to be the Lord. It must continue to be the Lord because as God declares in Isaiah 43, I, I am the Lord and besides me there is no Savior. So what will enable us to continue to answer that question, whom shall I fear with the Lord? The answer, I believe, comes in understanding these two kinds of fear and where they each lead. So as we look at the beginning of the Exodus story, I, I want to unpack from these verses these two kinds of fear and the practical fallout in this real-life story of oppression. The fear of man, the fear of man, as I said, leads to oppression. That the fear of man motivates Pharaoh's plans to oppress the Israelites can be seen on the face of the text. That Israel multiply, had multiplied greatly in Egypt was seen in verse 7, which we covered last week. They, they had grown so numerous through the blessing of God that Pharaoh began to see them as a threat to the nation. Yet in order to set in motion his and his administration's plan to control their growth and their influence in the land, Pharaoh had to get the whole nation to share his views. Uh, Douglas Stewart, commenting on the second part of Pharaoh's policy speech, writes, the second part of the statement, while surely an exaggeration, intended to frighten rather than present the facts accurately, plays on the universal and xenophobic dislike or prejudice against people from other uh, nations or peoples. It, it plays on the xenophobic tendency of peoples to fear losing their jobs, their wealth, their land, and their political control to foreigners in their midst. I want to suggest to you this morning that it is this fear of loss that leads us to otherize, leads us to otherize. That word otherize is defined as to view or treat a person, a group of people as intrinsically different from and alien to oneself. The Bible, of course, is replete with examples of this tendency. Indeed, some years before this story, Joseph is at a meal with his brothers who have not yet discovered that he is the brother whom they sold into slavery. And Joseph had become second in command in Egypt, prime minister of Egypt at the time, and had yet to reveal himself to his brothers. And in the story of that meal, we read this, they served him by himself and them by themselves, and the, Egyptian, the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. It appears that despite Joseph's prominence in Egypt, that spirit of seeing non-Egyptians as other was still very much alive and well during the rise of this new pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And by the way, I don't think that not knowing Joseph refers to knowledge, but it refers to regard. That this pharaoh did not regard Joseph, or his people for that matter, with the same affection as the pharaoh before them. Indeed, he was prepared to take that tendency to otherize to its zenith in his program of oppression. And in this way, 
he was acting within that sinful tendency that the fear of man produces. Douglas Stewart goes on in his comment on these verses to note, nations throughout history have tended to be afraid of losing their power to outsiders. So the Egyptian mentality at this point can be easily understood. What the Pharaoh did was to sound the alarmist note calculated to get approval from the masses for his planned campaign of oppression. That the Egyptians had fallen behind the foreigners in their midst and would need to act quickly to regain control. To portray his own people as somehow a minority, potentially dominated by the outsider majority, was a clever way to engender popular support for his plan. All oppressive regimes use the threat of some great danger, real or imagined, to justify violations of human rights. The Pharaoh was simply following this well-attested course of action. The point, of course, isn't to explain away the actions of Pharaoh, but to demonstrate how easy it is for human beings to seek into this kind of fear that leads to oppression. And why is this important for us to note? It's important because we don't just do this on a corporate level across race and gender and ethnicity and other lines. We do it to each other individually as well. In our fear of loss of something we hold dear, we make the other person a threat, a threat that must be guarded against. And in our individual relationships and our corporate ones, within the framework of the church, the Apostle Paul encourages us in a passage in which he's dealing with unbelievers and lawsuits. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why, rather, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The point here is not that there are not circumstances in which a person or people must defend themselves against a real threat. Nations are called to defend their citizens against harm, parents to care and protect their children, and so on. But this is not that. Pharaoh's plans were rooted not in reason, they were rooted in fear. And I would contend that this fear has driven and still drives lots of our interactions inside and outside the church. And when we otherwise in our fear of man, we become easily persuaded to do this second thing, and that is to abuse others, to maintain our place and our status and our position and our privilege. It becomes very easy to mistreat others when we determine that they are other. Once we determine that they are not a part of our group, not a part of our people, not a part of our club, then we don't have to care about what we do to them. They are in the way of our flourishing, so they have to be dealt with. And if you don't believe that, then just look at how John describes the motivation for putting our Lord Jesus to death. Yes, from a theological standpoint, Jesus died for our, for our sins, to set us free from sin and death. How many of you all are happy about that? That as you sit in this building today, you have been set free 
from all of your sins. You have been set free from death because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's good news. But from the standpoint of those who put him to death, John tells us this, chapter 11. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Sounds familiar, right? And you can go back and you can look at any historical experience of oppression and you will find among the many motivations driving it, the fear of loss is there. And the mistreatment of others, the abuse of others becomes much more tenable when I convince myself that they are other. And just look at the text. Look at the text. The oppression, the mistreatment, the abuse permeates every level of society from Pharaoh to the people. Look again at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread, that is, in fear of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The point is this, the whole nation was complicit at every point in making life for the people of Israel ruthlessly difficult. And the mistreatment wasn't just being played out on a policy level, but on a personal level. Our own history, of course, of slavery, and sharecropping, and the system of Jim Crow laws demonstrate how policy becomes personal practice throughout a region or throughout the whole land. But you say, how can people treat people that way? How can they go to bed at night? How can they carry on with their day-to-day lives knowing that this kind of thing is happening to people? How can they participate themselves in mistreating people this way? And among the answers comes ringing back is fear. Fear of what your existence could mean for my comfort. And here's what we need to understand. Moses is preparing a people, preparing a generation to enter the promised land. And he's, he's preparing them to live in that land as a people who are now made up not only of ethnic descendants of Abraham, but foreigners who came up with them out of Egypt. And you will see this later on in the book of Exodus, and more so if you look at God's law, that several times God reminds them that they are to take care of the foreigners in their midst. They are to take care of the immigrants in their midst. And his reasoning, because you know what it's like to be a foreigner in a land that is not your own. Therefore, you must not mistreat the foreigner in your midst. And if that is what the call of the Old Testament church was, then the call of the New Testament community purchased by the blood of Jesus and made up from all the nations of the earth should be the same. The call here, brothers and sisters, is to examine our own lives, to see where the fear of man might be driving our thinking and our living. What things are we comfortable with? Or worse, what things are we participating in that may be harming others as a result of our fear. Remember that Moses is preparing a people to not follow in the footsteps of the nations before them. 
to not treat those in their midst the same way the nations around them did. So how do we treat foreigners in our midst? How do we think about them and what do we want for them? Do we love them? Do we care about them and for them? Or do we see them as a threat, a threat we need to deal with to make sure our own lives are not troubled? In Leviticus 19, God tells his people, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native, as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I don't know what the national policy should be. I'm not a politician. I do know what the church's call is. I do know what should motivate our attitude and our behavior. The same is true in relationship to all those who are not from my group, not from my tribe. The call is to resist the temptation to let fear, the fear of man, drive my thinking and my behaving. And I just want to remind us that Pharaoh's policy of fear didn't just take root overnight. That fear was no doubt nurtured over several months and years by Pharaoh and his administration. It was reinforced by the public sentiment that increasingly grew hostile toward the Israelites. My point is to encourage us as Christians to not play into that fear that causes us to hate, that causes us to despise other people. Our own history and the history of the world is littered with too many examples of Christians giving into the fear of man. Amen, people of God. The fear of man leads to oppression. The fear of God leads to salvation. And in talking about that salvation, I want to first of all talk about resistance. The fear of God has, one of its core, has as one of its core tenets a commitment to resistance. In practice, in practice, in practice, the fear of God looks like resisting anything that keeps us from honoring and reverencing God as God and living our lives in this world in keeping with God's laws. The fear of God has been expressed by so many of God's servants who have had to stand up before powerful people and entities and persons and declare what Peter and the other apostles declared to those who had charged them not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. In Acts 5 we read, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. These Hebrew midwives in the story before us showed a tremendous courage that was rooted in that same fear of the Lord. Moses tells us as much in verse 17 when he says, in verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And they, in doing this, were most certainly putting their lives on the line to resist the will of one of the most powerful human beings on the planet at that time, who had already shown his commitment to violence to accomplish his plans by giving them the genocidal order to kill all the male children in Egypt in the first place showed a tremendous amount of courage. And it was courage that was rooted in the fear of the Lord. And there's no doubt that part of that fear was the realization that God's judgment was greater than that of Pharaoh. Jesus, centuries later, would warn those listening to him, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Certainly, these midwives would have had a sense 
that God's judgments were greater given that God is greater than all the kings of this world. Yet I also believe that the midwives' fear had another overtone, and it is that they realized that God's plans for the world were just and good over against the plans of Pharaoh. They, they could see through the evil of Pharaoh's plan and recognize that, that though he claimed it was good for the land, it would ultimately be the curse of the land. Praise God for those historically and those presently who can see through the lies of oppressive people and entities and who have had the courage to resist those lies. Praise God for Christians in this nation and in every nation throughout history who have laid their lives down to re resist oppression of all kinds. Praise God for those who fear God over men who were both mindful that God's judgment is greater than man's, but who also was mindful that his plans are more just and good than those of men. It was certainly true. It was certainly true that these midwives who protected the children of the Israelite women from the genocidal plans of Pharaoh, and it has been true of God's people at various points throughout history. The fear of God is about resistance, but it's also about favor. I want you to recognize two things in these verses. The first is that no one else's names are mentioned in these verses except these two women. The Pharaoh is not named, nor any of the elders of God's people at the time. The only two people named in this text are Shifra and Pua. And this is not an accident. Moses takes the time to identify these two women by name. He wants to highlight their courage at a time when everyone in the land outside the Israelites was giving in to the oppressive policy of Pharaoh. And there is no question that he wants those who are reading this and preparing to enter into the promised land to remember their courage as a courage to be followed. Yet he would, we would be mistaken to, to think that this favor comes from Moses alone on behalf of these two women. For in verse 20, we read this. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And then verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. These midwives received God's blessing because they refused to participate in Pharaoh's oppressive agenda, but instead saved the lives of these Israelite children. When they stood before Pharaoh, probably years after being told to help in this evil plan, they gave Pharaoh their reason for not being able to carry out Pharaoh's plan. They essentially told him that, that the babies were delivered before they got to the homes of these women to aid them in childbirth. And, and there's some question as to whether the, the, the story they told is true or not. However, Moses doesn't comment on it in the story, rather he indicates that, that these women made a conscious decision to resist Pharaoh. If they were disposed to obey, they could have found a way to execute Pharaoh's wishes, but they were disposed not to do so. In that way, they disobeyed the command of the king in favor of the command of God. And that fear of God was accompanied by the favor of God. 
God does not ignore, listen to me this morning, his people's commitment to stand for him and for his purposes in this world. God takes note of the sacrifices his people make to honor him and to honor his plans for the world over the sometimes wicked and evil plans of human beings in this world. And not only does God take note of our sacrifices, those we make because we fear him and no one else, he also brings life out of death that our enemies plan for us. He brings life out of death that our enemies plan for us. I wish I had some witnesses. He brings life out of death for the plans that our enemies make for us. These women who either barren or who had given, uh, who had given up the prospect of rearing children because of their responsibilities were given the blessing of life. Families of their own to carry on their family name in a community where carrying on one's family name was of great importance and value. Yet this was not the only display of God bringing life out of death. In the text, for those whom Pharaoh tried to destroy through his program of evil, God kept growing and growing and growing. I, I, I wish I had to witness this. God is the God who brings life out of death. What our enemies plan for us, God reverses. What our enemies plan for us, God They kept growing and growing and growing, brothers and sisters. This is a story of God's salvation. It's a story for those who have answered that question, whom shall I fear, and have declared the answer to be the Lord. To those who have decided to fear the Lord rather than to fear man, God says his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. It is to them who Mary declares in her song in Luke 1, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. It is to those who fear him that he says in Psalm 115, he will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. It is to those who fear him that he says in Psalm 34, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. And it is ultimately those who fear him who will one day hear, Come, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The call, the call here, brothers and sisters, is to fear God. It's to reverence Him as the true judge over all the earth. It is to believe that His plans for the world are good and that His plans are the ones that will ultimately succeed in this world. It's to believe and act on the fear of God when we are confronted with situations and decisions that challenge that fear. When we're asked to believe something or do something that we know is not in keeping with God's truth. We must choose the fear of God over the fear of man. And while this choice may not always be a dramatic choice, there are times when choosing to fear God may present us with the threat of loss. And like these two women, we must be prepared for God's glory to pay the cost. And what will enable us what will enable us to do that is the knowledge, is the knowledge that in the end, 
in the end, come life or death, the favor of God will be upon us. God will bless us for standing for Him, for reverencing Him, for fearing Him over others. For those of you who have made that choice to fear God over man, and for those of you who have paid the cost for doing so, please know God sees you. He hasn't forgotten you, and He will not forget your sacrifice. He will bless you because that is His faithful promise to all who fear Him. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? Brothers and sisters, may our answer always be the Lord. And for those whose faith is in Jesus Christ, it will be. For the Spirit of God is in you to help you choose the fear of God over the fear of man. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for your people this morning. I pray that as they are confronted each and every day with individual and personal decisions, where they're confronted with the question, whom shall I fear? I pray that you would give them power to choose the fear of God over the fear of man. For those of us who are faced with the collective decision of whether we're going to fear man or fear God, I pray that you would give us the power to fear you over human beings. I pray, Lord God, for this because the fear of God leads to salvation whereas the fear of man leads to oppression. And so I pray that we as your people would not be led into oppression, but instead would be led into the salvation of God, not only for ourselves, but to proclaim that salvation to those around us. Lord, I pray for this, for this church, but for all your people across this city, this nation, and this world. Help us always to choose the fear of God over the fear of man. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.